Well, again, good afternoon. Welcome to Manhattan Presbyterian Church. I guess it's a little late to actually be welcoming, but we are in Philippians chapter 4. We're getting close to the end of this book, and it's kind of a sad thing for me. This will be the end of the first book that we preached through or worked through together as a church, and it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. And so, in case you're wondering and weren't here last week, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes starting in two weeks, an Old Testament wisdom book, and it should be an interesting time, but looking forward to that. Be, uh, be in prayer for that, though, as we start to get our head around that and, and working towards that. Uh, like I said, we're in Philippians 4, so if you've got your Bible, open up there. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13 tonight. Beginning in verse 10, follow along. It's in your bulletin if you need it. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grass withers and the flower fades. One of the defining realities of living in 21st century United States is that we have an amazing number of options. Find this out from time to time. Laura usually does probably 99% of our grocery shopping, which she says is good because when I go with her, she claims it costs a lot more. The food's usually a little better, too. But occasionally when I'm with her, she'll send me off on some mission. And I don't know if it's just to get rid of me or for some other reason, but she'll send me off to get something. And I can remember a few years ago her asking me to just go, go pick up some toothpaste. So I went off and I found the aisle, and uh, as I walk down the aisle, I find it, and I just kind of stop in my tracks and stare. There must have been a hundred options of toothpaste. There's tartar control, fluoride, sensitive teeth, whitening, some that, fight, that fights gingivitis, uh, or you know, included mouthwash. There were all sorts of branding on it. There was Disney princesses and Ninja Turtles and Avengers and Toy Story and all sorts of other things that children and, and many husbands like. There was gel. There was liquid gel. I don't know the difference of those two. There was powder even. And of course, there was the actual paste. And then you begin to see these flavors. There were so many flavors. There was cinnamon and vanilla and citrus and bubble gum. And there was, there was mint. But not, not just mint. There was winter mint and spirit. I kid you not, these are real. Winter mint, spearmint, fresh mint, vanilla mint, cool mint, minty fresh, mint spark, lasting mint, mint splash, smooth mint, fresh mint, herbal mint, vanilla mint, peppermint, and even mint chocolate. It was like Bubba Gump went to work for them. And really, that was just the options that Crest offers. You don't even begin to really think about the other 10 brands that are available. And so by the time I made my decision, I was just absolutely exhausted standing there, mentally. And the truth was, I was completely unsatisfied in the choice I had made. I just kept thinking to myself, I should have gotten the vanilla mint with tartar control and whitening gel. And I just regretted that completely. But as I wandered back to Laura, just mentally exhausted from this exercise, I really did wonder to myself, why, almost angry, why are there so many choices for toothpaste? Really, why are there so many choices for everything? Dr. Barry Swartz asked the same question, and he concluded that 
It's the ethos of American society, the idea that freedom is good and more is better. Having options is one of those things that we believe will bring satisfaction because really if there are more options, it seems more likely that we will get exactly what we want. If this were true though, we in the 21st century United States would be the most content people in the history of the world. Yet, we are not. In fact, our lack of satisfaction as a culture has given rise to, this is the real number, $177 billion being spent every year on advertising, just in the United States. Advertising that overwhelmingly works from this simple plan of convincing people that their life is somehow incomplete, with the lie that you cannot possibly be content until you have found a way to obtain the very thing that they are selling. Now, what we see in our text today is that God desires for his people to be different than the world. We are called to be content in whatever life he has given us. So I want us to look a little closer at this text, and and we're going to see what we might learn from God's word about contentment. Verse 10 begins with, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so remember the situation. Paul was imprisoned at this time, and, and their system, their prison system, was not as posh as our prison system. Their government didn't provide them with food, didn't provide them with clothing, didn't provide them with cable TV. In fact, the only thing that the Roman government really provided was the shackles and the guards to make sure you didn't go anywhere you weren't supposed to. And in these moments, when, when Paul found himself in need and no one showed up, he found himself feeling uncared for, feeling forgotten. Uh, And then he was encouraged to learn that his feelings were wrong, Uh, that really the Philippians were concerned for him, even though they were unable to help him at one point. And so try to remember this, even as we think of this, try to remember that sometimes when you feel uncared for, it might be that people do care, but they don't know what problems are going on in your life or they don't know how to help, or or really they are simply unable to help you in the way that you need. When Paul is standing there and Epaphrodite showed up with the the gift, though, Paul suddenly realized they do care. They do care for him. And we, too, need to rejoice uh, in the way just like Paul did, and and thank God when he has given you others who do care for you, who provide for you in ways that that are needed. If you ever received even just a kind note in the mail or Uh, some other way, you you know just how encouraging that can be to you. The flip side is that we consider how we might provide care to other people. Is that on your your radar to think about that? And then in verse 11, we really get to what is the the major overarching theme of this text, which is contentment. The word contentment itself comes from the Latin word, which sounds just the same, contentus, uh, and it means satisfied or to be void of desire. It's often defined as a a peaceful happiness, or the lack of of any want, any desire. It's closely tied to our feelings, to what we think and we feel about our circumstances, about the possessions that we have, about uh, all other aspects of our life. And it's almost this almost universally sought-after condition of the heart, pure satisfaction. You might have noticed in our liturgy today, hopefully you did, that's why we put it there, but that in our affirmation of faith today dealt with the Tenth Commandment. That wasn't by mistake. We try to work these things in on purpose. It's the issue of coveting, the desire to possess something that you do not have. Coveting relates to contentment because it's a a sin that comes from being discontent. 
I remember the, the commandments given in Exodus 20:17, the 10th commandment even goes on to give us some examples. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, why would you covet your neighbor's house? Maybe it's, it's bigger, it's nicer, it's filled with better stuff, it's in a better part of town. It's really the house you wish you had. Uh, what about your neighbor's wife? Why would you covet her? It stemmed from dissatisfaction with your own spouse or the fact that you are disconsent still being single. The male and the female servants here are like our employees or co-workers or jobs. Uh, the ox and the donkey seem a little strange. You think, well, yeah, who cares? But we can relate when we realize that the ox and the donkey were absolute cutting-edge technology in the time of Exodus. Some Israelite might have, you know, even had this conversation. So, are you still using your hands to plow? Are you kidding? No way, bro. I upgraded to an ox. They probably didn't use the word bro. What you need to see, though, is that the ox is, is like our cars. It's our power tools, our kitchen mixers, our computers and our phones. It's how you might feel about your neighbor's iPhone 6 or Android or whatever it might be. It's really getting to this heart issue. And at the heart, coveting stems from being unsatisfied with what God has given you. In fact, many of the Ten Commandments stem from discontentment. Why would you worship an idol if you were content with God? Why would you steal if you were content with what you have? Why would you lie if you were content with what the truth will accomplish? And this is nothing new. The people of God have always, throughout redemptive history, struggled with being satisfied in what God has given them and, and God himself. And I didn't think of this myself, but in Providence, I was reading to my, my kids in a children's Bible this week, and it happened to be on Numbers 11. I really dealt with this. There, in Numbers 11, the, the Israelites are, are, are just coming out of a, a situation where they were slaves in Egypt. And they wanted to be set free. That's all they wanted was to be set free. And God does set them free. And after they escape, they wander into the desert, and they're frustrated, and they're moving around, and, and God gives them this food, this manna, which falls from the sky, this bread-like substance that comes down for them, and the people are discontent. They're unsatisfied. They want other food, and so they complain to God. You know, they're not saying, God, thank you for the manna. May we also have some meat. They're just complaining to God. And what we learn here is, real quickly, we learn that God is not pleased with their complaining. Church, he's not pleased with our complaining either. Now, I want to think about Paul's life for a moment. He has every reason in the world to complain. He's given up his life of prestige in the Jewish world. Also, he can obediently take the gospel to people who need to hear it. And how, if you look back and say, you know, how has he providentially been, been re repaid for this or, or, or rewarded for this? Well, he lost all his Jewish friends. It would have been distant from his family as a result of this. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, he writes, To the present hour we, are, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted, that's to be hit, and homeless. Later in 2 Corinthians 11, 25-27, he shares, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, 
and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. If ever anyone had reason to complain, Paul had reason. Many of us also might have good reason to complain. We might really have a difficult spouse. We might really have grown up with cruel parents. We might really have a jerk of a boss. We might be exhausted from children not sleeping like they should, or facing more health issues than others, missing a deployed husband, or are tired of being single when everyone else seems to be finding love, or, or working hard and yet still not being able to pay our bills. Here's what we need to understand. Having a good reason to complain is not a good reason to complain. What we need to embrace here is what we see in verse 11. We need to to say and, and mean with Paul what he says here. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In fact, we don't do this often, but I want you to say it with me. We'll do it just like a wedding, step by step. But really, repeat after me, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I say you memorize things better when you say it out loud, and if there's anything in this text to memorize, it's that. That's great. Paul then does a very strange little thing here. He talks about both ends of the spectrum. I, I don't tend to think of this with contentment. He, he says he knows how to be brought low. That's poor. That's lacking prestige. That's being forgotten. That's humility. But really, the, the strange part is that he also talks about abundance. Why does he talk about abundance in the context of contentment? I mean, he talks about abundance because contentment and satisfaction has nothing to do what God has given us or what he has not given us. The person who is discontent being single will be discontent being married as well. The person who complains and is unsatisfied with the small income they have will also complain about their income when it is higher. There's always something more that we believe we deserve or think that we need. It's it's not just stuff, though, either. Verse 12 continues, we see that he's talking about every circumstance, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This term abundance means, well, you probably know it, a very large quantity or or really more than we need. It's like having three gloves for your two-handed self. We don't always realize it, but as Americans, we actually live in a great abundance. And I don't mean Americans like Bill Gates and Oprah and, and, and the such. I mean, you and I live in a great deal of abundance. There's a a book that uh, we were reading called With a Shepherd's Heart. And in this book, the author tells a story about a man in Africa who helps this young American couple do some adoption overseas. And eventually he comes to America to visit them. And and when he arrives at at their home, his eyes just get wide. And and he's looking at their wealth. and, And the book's real clear to tell us they're not people that we would consider wealthy. And he said to them, you have so many things that you don't need. The pictures on the wall, I never even think of that. Uh, The chairs you don't sit in. The clothes you don't wear. He was shocked by the abundance of things that we have we don't even need. And what we see as normal, this man saw as abundance. And whether we realize it or not, we live in abundance. The idea of of need in this text, then, on the other hand, is, is having less than what you really need. It's 
That's like the one glove for your two-handed self. That's an actual need then, right? And, and I've told you all before, I, I grew up in, in Houston, and it was the suburbs. I like you to think I came from the city completely, but it was more like the suburbs, and uh, I became a Christian at the age of 17. And the place where I grew up, my family was, was really in the middle of the culture financially. There were many that were richer than us, and there were many that were poorer than us. And the truth is, I have struggled throughout my entire life with truly treasuring Christ more than anything. I have at times thought that we had too much money and that we were not doing enough with it. My discontentment in those times were that my dedication to God was too weak. I've also worried about not having enough money, that if I had more, then I could help more people. I could give more to church. I could give more to organizations. Or more often than not, I could have more stuff that I want. Both abundance and need have led me to be discontent in my life. Really, we're always wanting the things that we don't have. Uh, I want to read a, a short poem to you. It was written in the 1980s. Might be the only good thing to come out of the 80s. A guy named Jason Lehman, and he writes this. He says, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of my mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Jason Lehman was 14 years old when he wrote that. He was aware, even at that young age, about the human condition, that we are always wanting the very things we don't have. Uh, and this is true of stuff, and it's true of everything else. Uh, Zach Eswine uh, wrote an amazing book called Sensing Jesus that John Dunning recommended to me a while back. And in this book, he writes that the, the unspoken motto of our advancement is this, somewhere else doing something else. His point was that we are even discontent with wherever we are at any moment. And that's why we find ourselves in the presence of one person, and yet here we are on our phone, on Facebook, texting, Instagram, something else. And Eswine continues, he says, I've noticed that when one is not concerned with being somewhere else, she tends to notice where she is. In such an environment, daily moments naturally become the topic of everyday conversation. So by this point, you might be thinking, okay, we get it. We are a discontent people. What now? Well, there's an answer. Paul, in, in verse 12, says he's found the secret of contentment, whether he's facing plenty or hunger. The phrase, the secret, it sounds almost mystical. It doesn't belong in a Christian text, it seems like. Uh, but really, it's there on purpose. And it is a term, this, this term secret helps us to understand that it is a mystery to those who are outside the faith, this contentment that the Christian has. And in fact, the contentment of Christians should seem odd to those who are not Christian. But what is Paul's secret? Upon a, a simple reading, it really doesn't look like he answers that question. Paul 
does tell us what a secret is. But the reason it doesn't look like it is that the answer is verse 13. And verse 13, while being one of the most widely known verses in all of Scripture, is also one of the most widely taken out of context verses in all of Scripture. Uh, even if you've never opened a Bible, I bet you, you would have seen this verse somewhere. It's, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it's often this athletic motivational verse or any other kind of motivational verse that somehow you can accomplish anything you want to accomplish. However, verse 13 is not about winning a gold medal. It's not about getting a contract with a recording studio. And it doesn't mean that you can walk on K-State's football team next year doesn't mean you're going to get any job you want. In fact, I can quote this thing 50 times a day, and I am not going to be able to throw a 100-mile fastball, which is disappointing. Now, I know when people quote this for motivational purposes, they mean well. That's not the issue. But when we read the phrase, all things in this passage, it must be understood within the context of this passage, which is really more encouraging for the everyday Christian life. And so there's some regard that we get disappointed when we find out it's not a motivational verse. And I'm telling you, it's more important for you as a Christian living every single day of your life. And so this means that through Christ, we can find contentment in life when we are brought low and when we abound, when we have plenty and when we are hungry, when we have abundance and when we are in need. Yes, we can experience the sweet peace of contentment in any and every circumstance. And I know what Paul reveals is, is not a mind-blowing secret, but it's a life-alternating secret if we understand the simple point. And the simple point is this, Jesus Christ is enough, which means we can be content even if we possess nothing but Jesus. And this is how it works. Paul isn't constantly thinking about his situation. He's constantly thinking about his Savior. And this relates to what we think about. It's, it's like we saw last week. At the most basic level, we as Christians are to be content because we're not dwelling on what we have or, or, or what we don't have in this world. Really, our mind should be spending more time thinking about what we have in Christ and, and what we will have in this life to come. These are real things that shape our life. I know in recent years there's been some backlash on the idea of a quiet time, of beginning your day with, with scripture and, and, and prayer and journaling or any other aspect of that, meeting with, with God in the mornings or sometime. And I think there's been a backlash because it's been often presented as something that is a requirement for Christians to do. It's not a requirement. Not any more than regular conversation with your spouse is a requirement for marriage. However, in both cases, it will do wonders to foster your relationship we're dealing with. And I think sometimes we just need to be reminded of, of our place in, in Christ. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of the things that we do have. Christian, you deserve hell. But what you have received in the gospel is true love. Can you rest in that contentment? I mean, can you rest in the fact that what you deserve is hell and what you have received is the grace of God? What this means is that we can have wealth and still find ourselves content, not in our wealth, but in Jesus. Or we can have great debt and fi yet find ourselves content in Christ. Your satisfaction as a woman or as a man today is nothing more than the fact that you are in Christ. Has God given you abundance of wealth? 
Don't be ashamed of that. Praise God. Show the worth of God in the way that you use that wealth. Has he brought you low? Praise God for that. Show the worth of God in how you find contentment in Christ anyway. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 gives us some other encouraging words on a similar topic. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Are you getting this? The solution to our discontentment is not to obtain the very next thing we desire. Uh, if you are in Christ, then you already possess everything you need to rest satisfied in your life. Let me say that again, because you really need to understand that if you have the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, then you already have everything you need to rest satisfied in your life. It's that feeling we get from satisfaction, that contentment, that breathing in, your sins are forgiven, and that breathing out. Now I do want to touch briefly on a topic of ambition. And my reason is this, that some of you hear this word contentment and you think that's just a coping mechanism for lazy people who lack ambition. Fair? Ambition's not the opposite of contentment. When we talk about contentment, it's not saying to get rid of ambition. Ambition can be a very good thing. Hopefully, we as a church have a godly ambition that pushes us to live with a restless pursuit of seeking to know God more. It's also a great thing that Christians are helping to push the bounds of science and industry, making movies and music and starting businesses and organizations and seeking to see those grow and expand. What we do need in all of these situations, though, is to be asking ourselves this question, what is driving my ambition? Is it discontentment with my life? Because in that case, ambition is a problem. Is it a quest for luxury or security or prestige? If, if so, then we need to take some time to evaluate why we are doing what we are doing. Because to have real contentment is to remember that everything belongs to God. And all that we have is a gift from him. And that includes our talents and our abilities and so many other things that we have been gifted with. In fact, taking time to even make a list of everything you have to be thankful to God for in your life is a helpful exercise towards our contentment. That's, it's also a great time to ask God for wisdom on how you might wisely use what he has given you in possessions, gifts, talents, and experience. So we move from asking, what do I want and do not have, to... What has God given me and how can I use it to bring glory to his name? That's the question we're asking. It's putting into practice what we read in Hebrews 13.5. We're here the author reminds us to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You notice that last part. There's an exercise of faith. It's believing this promise that God will care for you in the way that you need to be cared for. Now, it's true that every day we face many opportunities to be discontent. Our eyes, our minds, focus on what we want and what we have not been given. Some of those things we want would be sinful if we were to have them. Some of those things we desire we could only obtain through means that would dishonor God. Some of those things are as simple as a good night's sleep. In all cases, though, if we are to do battle against discontentment, we need to change our focus. And that's Paul's secret. Remember, 
Far back, uh, before Christmas, we were in Philippians 3.8, and there Paul writes this. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, we don't often treasure Christ properly. We're like those, those people who have a garage sale to, to get some spending money without realizing They've sold very valuable historical items for less than a dollar. And so we must know the worth of Jesus. We must know the worth of our salvation. We must know the worth of belonging to Christ because apart from Christ, nothing will bring you true and lasting satisfaction. The new car, the boyfriend, the husband or wife, the the new computer, the child, the new home, the better phone, the job or promotion, the cute dress, the weight loss, the great body, the respect of others, the PS4, tenure, the new card, a finished project you're working on, someone behaving the way you wish they would behave. Whatever it is that you are desiring and do not have will not bring lasting satisfaction. And we've fallen for this too many times. If it's satisfaction you seek, you will only find it in the gospel where the enemies of God are transformed into his very children. Now there's one more thing we need to see in this text. When we're reading Paul, understand this. We're reading a man who has learned, uh, who has lived, and he's, he's grown, and we're seeing a mature Christian later in his life. And I, I tell you this because that's not where Paul began. Twice in this text we read that he has learned. Verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. In verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We are all in different stages of this learning. And so don't be too harsh on yourself or others who are in this this process of learning what it means to be content. The other side of this is be learning. Evaluate your thoughts, your feelings, Hold them up to Scripture. Don't forget that learning is, is hard work, and it often includes failure and frustration as you learn something new. Learning contentment is, is no different. And so focus your mind on Christ. Treasure Him. Look at what you have, which God has given you, and take time to thank God for these blessings. Really, Thanksgiving should not be the only time of year that we're thankful for things. That we're coming to God and thanking Him for those. I'll close with a a quote from Kent Hughes. He's speaking of why our, our circumstances and our stuff will never satisfy, and yet Christ will. He says, Both abundance and loss will pass, but Christ remains the same.